You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, typically at this point, I'm announcing a guest on the show, but today I've got my uh, good friend, Brendan Reed with me. Brendan is one of the facilitators of our Managing Leadership Anxiety class that we have at our church. And actually, Brendan, we just wrapped up our class for the year. We did. What was your take? What did you think? Um, it was quite interesting doing it via video call, unless I'm sure is yeah. a lot of people are kind of <laughs> figuring that whole thing out. Uh, worked a lot better than I thought it would, though, from the last, I think we had two sessions that we did on video call and then yeah. called it a wrap. And it, it seemed to be that, I mean, that was the first group that I've led with, co-led with anybody. So it was a lot of fun. And I think there was some very good reception from what I saw and everybody in our group and I actually talked to one of the people in our group and she said that after the fact, I think is when it's starting to kind of all come to fruition for her. Yeah. So, and I, that was my experience was like, I went through it and stuff was kind of relevant at the time, but then a couple weeks down the road, some stuff really started to show up after I kind of had like my eyes, scales removed from my eyes in a sense. So yeah, it was fun. It was a fun class. I'm glad I got the opportunity to do it and hopefully we can keep doing it. So yeah. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is um, now the book's been out a year, I get a lot of people, maybe they've read the book or maybe they've come to a workshop or something that I do, and then they want to take the next step. So you took the next step of going from being a student to a facilitator. Right. What was the difference for you? Um, Definitely a lot more uh, reading and research instead of being taught. You know, I had to, you know, go through and read it and kind of process it myself. Yeah, we um, gave you a list of books to read too outside yeah, of my stuff, right? Like three or four. One of them was, two of them are actually pretty dry, but... <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. What'd you think? <laughs> um, no, they were, they were good. The, the ones that were dry, I think it was more of, it was more like, we just had a little quick, quick previous conversation about reading and then externalizing. Yeah. I definitely needed to externalize some of the drier material um, because it, it kind of you kind of get into your own head when I was reading it and trying to hard, have a hard time understanding it. Yeah. Um, I think we've talked about her book before, The Eight Concepts of Bowen Theory. That one's bit, pretty, uh, yeah, yeah, that one yeah. took some externalizing, I think, to figure out. But man, and one book that we had to read, I think, to facilitate, we've talked about it before, is uh, Brief Therapy with Intimidating Cases. Yeah. I loved that book. Yeah. Uh, What's Lewick and Weakland for people who are listening? It's a book called uh, Brief Therapy with Intimidating Cases. Uh, I'll just jump in. The premise is... Um, that they use a, a tool called Second Order Change that we've talked about on the show. It's in the book, in my book. But the whole book's dedicated to it. And the accusation against these guys is that Second Order Change only works for simple, low-hanging fruit cases. So they take the worst possible scenarios oh, and man. show them in that book. Yeah, that was that was phenomenal to me, I think. That, that was the one material, I think, that I had a hard time understanding the first time through the class. Mm-hmm. But then going through and reading it, I had a better grasp of it, and I felt like I could explain it better to people. And I think just teaching it too, it's it's a refresher course for myself as well. Like I'm not actually in the hot seat. I'm not doing the genograms and the verbatims, but it makes me, you know, think about those specific things. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll look at those myself and kind of reprocess as well. So facilitating is good for yourself and because you're giving the tools to somebody else. And I think that's what I enjoyed about it was watching people have like these light bulb moments where they're like, oh my gosh, this... I get this now, like this is why I'm doing this and this is how I can help uh, move towards growth in it. Yeah. And even watching people in our class do that too. I mean, there's one specific person who, um, name names, but 
she had a job situation where somebody was being incompetent and it took, I think it was like a course, a couple of months mm -hmm. of just processing it in our class and finally making a decision about it. Like that was cool to see it happen in real time that, um, as you're facilitating. So, yeah. And you, you facilitated genograms and verbatims mm -hmm. was before you did a verbatim. What's the difference when you're facilitating someone's verbatim as opposed to being just a student when someone presents a verbatim? It's a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. um, may, not as an emotionally much work, but you have to be on all the time because yeah. you're watching all these little tiny group therapy dynamics happen and you're trying to navigate and lead and make people feel safe. Um, and then if somebody starts to go down another track, it's quickly reining them in and not... Being a, not necessarily being a jerk about it, but if you have to be one, like if somebody's being mean, doing that, I, I don't think we had to do any of that in this class specifically, yeah. Yeah. but it's that hy hyper sense of awareness of what's actually happening in the room. And that was way different than being on the receiving end where you're reading and people are trying to microanalyze whatever's going on. Yeah. Um, and then even, I think there's pressure too, to feel like you have to have some type of insight as well as the group leader. And realizing that I didn't have to do that. And sometimes some of the people in the group had more insight than I did in certain situations. Yeah. I think that's the power of that whole thing is even though I'm there to help move things along and make sure that we're staying on track and on time and we're not going into different paths and down different trails that I, I don't have to have all the answers. And even if I don't, somebody probably there might. And if nobody's got any, then that's okay too. And having to navigate that own anxiety while you're in that class too at the same time. Yeah. So. That's a whole different beast. Yeah, it is. The, the other thing I've noticed is is it feels like when you're facilitating, you have to be hyper aware of your own thinking. To, <sighs> like I, I'm constantly filtering my own thoughts. Should I share this? Should I not? When's the right time? All of that. Yeah, it's pretty wearing. The reason I ask you is, is a lot of people I've noticed are really intimidated. They'll go through this material. You know, we had a bunch of people come to our workshop yep. way back in March in the good old days when yep. we were together together. <laughs> Literally one or two weeks before the whole thing happened. Yeah. Actually, the day it started happening. So oh, that's right. as an aside, we wrap up our two-day workshop. My family goes out to eat to celebrate and we watch the country lock down while we're oh. at dinner. Yeah. But people, like maybe they do a workshop or they read the book and they feel like it's a too giant a leap to go from learning it to fa facilitating. Right. And I'm trying to tell them that facilitating is the way to learn and that if, if they're a caring person, they probably won't do much damage. Right. What do you think? I think that's true. I, I think it helps to have somebody holding your hand a little bit like you did with me. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there was a couple class times where I hadn't done a verbatim yet, and I don't think that we did one yet, and you were gone, and I ended up having to run up myself. And I was nervous about it going into it. I was like, oh, man, I hope I don't mess this up. Yeah. But it, it really wasn't – like I just named it, just said, hey – I, this is my first time doing this. Yeah. Uh, Steve's gone. Uh, we're going to try this and I'll do my best. So here we go. And it worked out fine. Like I had a really good time doing it and I did better than I thought I was going to. So I would highly encourage any of you, if you're thinking about facilitating this and you're not sure to go ahead and give it a shot. But I also think having like the video material stuff that you've got, and I'm yeah. not trying to push a sell, yeah. But that stuff definitely helps because you kind of talk about how to go through and facilitate as well. So. Yeah, yeah. We've got downloadable tools on how to facilitate a room. And, and really in the big idea to me, it's what you said before. If the facilitator can create a safe environment, it's amazing to me. It's almost miraculous. All the different students we've had over the years, 
they all participate. They all find things to help somebody process. And all you yep. have to do as a facilitator is cultivate a, cre- a safe space. Right. You're kind of, you're, you're pushing the car along while they're all driving it in a sense. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. It's good stuff, man. I wish if you're thinking about it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Well, this is going to be a short episode. We just wanted to talk about two sources of anxiety in this episode that make you anxious that as we were chatting off mic, we think we're in right now. One of them is ambiguity. The other one is when you don't know what to do. Right. And we were kicking around off mic, oh, do we want to talk about COVID? Do we want to not? But whether we talk about COVID or not, for sure, anytime you're in a situation that's ambiguous, you're going to be anxious. Right. Yeah. What comes to mind for you with that? Just personal situations? Yeah, or work. I mean, your whole work job has changed. I know. Um, I think there's definitely anxiety right now about what I'm supposed to be doing all the time. Um, Because a lot of mine is, I have a very large volunteer base that I take care of, and they volunteer on Sundays and Thursdays, and right now we're not doing that. And so it's a big chunk of my time that's been cut out and trying to, you know, talk to my supervisor and say, hey, you know, this, I don't, I'm not doing everything all the time. So is this okay? And like being, I think a lot of people are worried about that with the work at home stuff right now is just, am I, am I going to get fired? You know, that type of thing. I think with the ambiguity is the finance aspect too, for some people and for me too. And just, it's a very uncertain time. (laughs) And, um, it's, I think trying to find a place to kind of ground myself has been difficult. Because when you, the first part of this, I mean, two months we were locked down in in house, you know, and it's, I think you started getting into your own head and definitely I ate a lot more. Like there's just all the ambiguity brings up so much different feelings of anxiety and ways to cope with it. And um, I think living or being married as well, like living in a space with a bunch of people, like trying to figure out, hey, how do we manage, you know, space? Like, how do I make sure that I'm not getting on your nerves and you're not getting on my nerves in this whole thing? Because it's, it's been, man, it's been so uncertain. Everything's been uncertain. Hours, job, fine, everything. Yeah, one of the things we've been saying is, um, you know, we go into isolation to protect each other from COVID, but we still catch each other's anxiety. Like, oh, yeah. Anxiety is contagious in a group, so here we are in lockdown in a group, many of us. Right. And it, it definitely escalates. I think the other challenge is, um, I think ambiguity is the source of anxiety. And then I think um, long-term ambiguity is even worse. Oh, yeah. But then it feels like what the season we're in right now as we record is is shifting ambiguity. So we go into lockdown and then it, it's it's kind of like it's a big pivot, but it's kind of clear. We can't be in the building. We have to do church online. It's ambiguous, but that's clear. Now it feels like we're in – it's hard to know how to reopen the building now. right. I, I definitely think there's pressure for some churches to. People are asking, "Hey, when are we going to get back together?" People you know, really want to get back. We yeah. shouldn't be afraid of this, you know. But then our responsibility, I think, too, is, man, how do we protect people too, like the vulnerable population, and you know, rethinking church as a whole, like what the church. Did, I mean, do we do church the same way anymore? Like, right. is this whole thing shifting after hundreds and hundreds of years? We're now. We're in a pivoting, pivoting point into the church's history, you know, much like they, when they moved from the, the house churches to, you know, the big organized, you know, Catholic church, things like that. Like, yeah. it just feels there's a lot of um, ideas being thrown around about what to do. And I <laughs> I don't think any of us really know. It's kind yeah. of a day-by-day thing at this point. So Yeah. 
yeah, I've noticed in myself, I'm, I'm having trouble name, like what, to me, what helps in ambiguity is if you can name all the dynamics, at least it makes it less ambiguous. But it feels like for opening a church, there's like a dozen different dynamics. I was reading an article the other day, you know, there's a lot of people saying, look, supermarkets are open, why can't churches be open? Which right. is a very reasonable question. Right. But then this article's like, yeah, let's talk about the way you interact in a supermarket versus a church. Right. The completely unnatural thing in a church to isolate from each other when just the nature of church, everyone's hugging and right. And we saw that. We had actually a, a farewell party for a staff member and there were radically different responses that night. Some people isolating with masks, some openly hugging. And I remember watching that thinking, oh man. Yeah, there's no way that we can. We are not a supermarket. Yeah. Well, the thing about supermarket is too, you kind of need food to live. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, I, I think the people are like, community is such a big thing right now. Like I, I tend to be more introverted with people. Like I was doing okay the first month of this, the whole lockdown thing, but then starting month two, I was like, okay, it's, you know, I, mm -hmm. this is starting to get to me a little bit. Um, and we actually, I think we had a couple people over once the lockdown ended and you could go up to groups of 10 yeah. and that was good. But then I think we did it two times that week and I was already drained. Yeah. Like I, I feel very much like I've lost the ability to be around groups of people more than I used to. Hmm. And so I, I wonder what that's going to do to those individuals like me. And I think you're kind of on the same way too, in some senses, man, I get drained so much quicker now. It's like, it's I almost forgotten how to interact with people sometimes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, man, it, and it feels, and that's the part that's missing is the community stuff is like, what, what can we do in a time of uncertainty and ambiguity to make people feel cared for as the church? And maybe it's not the building, you know, yeah. what, maybe it's people's houses. I, I don't know, yeah. you know, um, and you know, it could be a, Hey, this is a hug. This is a hug home. This is not yeah, a hug home, right. you know, yeah. things like that. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. but like you said, I think naming what's going on is makes it easier to grasp, but I don't think, I feel like we can't really name this right now in some sense. Do you feel the same way or no? I, f I feel like um, I feel like the challenge with this ambiguity is the I hope this makes sense, but the ambiguity itself is not linear. So like it feels like the nature of the ambiguity is also shifting, which just makes it more ambiguous. So for example, we go into lockdown. We so I remember when we went into lockdown, we were thinking, okay, now we're going to go to a house church model, right? And then within forty eight hours, we realized, no, we're not. Yeah. We actually, I remember, we encouraged people to get together in small groups and watch as a small group on a Sunday. Right. So two two days later, we're like, don't get in small groups, stay in your home. Right. And so that was ambiguity, but it was like on its own linear path. We're just in lockdown. That's it. Now that things are starting to ease up. And we're looking at what do we do in June? What do we do in July? What do we do in August? Will we have a Christmas the way we understood it? It feels like that's harder because there's like, I think it's about 12 different dynamics. So we've been doing research on outdoor versus indoor space. And um, what's the benefit of 30 people gathering? And what do you do with kids? And and I, it's really good conversations. Like we've decided as a church, if we're a radically welcoming community, we don't want to be policing people's behavior. Right. So how do we then create environments where people can feel free and not feel confined and we keep them safe and holy smokes. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. I, I feel like the other part that's adding to anxiety and I don't know how to really name this, but um, so when somebody in your life dies, 
you you have a period of where you're still kind of in shock. You know, I don't know if you still subscribe to the stages of grief or not, but there's there's periods of time where you're just kind of in a survival mode. And I feel like, I mean, what is it, like 80,000 people have died now from this? Yeah. And we still haven't really, like I haven't seen anything about people mourning or anything like that. Like oh, it, interesting. Yeah. I don't know if we're in this weird... The anxiety is coming up also because we don't have the ability to mourn right now because we're still in the midst of all this going on. Like, I don't know what families did during like the world wars. And for example, of if it was, Hey, we have to, people are dying and we can mourn after this is done. But right now we have to fight and, you know, survive. It's, it's brutal. Um, I'm on a call. I think it's about every other week with the governor of our state and it's an open clergy call. It's not like he and I are buds. There's 700 clergy on this call. Mm. And I would say, and he's been amazing. He does about a 20-minute update, and then he takes about 40 minutes of Q&A. Wow. I'd say the overwhelming question is funeral-based. Really? Yeah, most churches are trying to say, what can we and can't we do? Mm. And it is, it's um, it's interesting. I, I was also asked to do an anxiety webinar for medical professionals. Wow. You and I probably haven't talked about this. No, we haven't. Um, and the, almost all the medical professionals are on the front lines of COVID. And it was chilling, like hearing wow. them, their own anxiety about infecting their families. Wow. And then uh, it's really impressive. These are Christian medical professionals. They, they were saying, how do we relate as a human when we look like an astronaut? Like we're right. so doled up in our isolation gear. And so some of them are like putting a full photo of themselves on outside because you can't recognize them through their mask. Um, but they were talking about the absolute gut-wrenching situation of calling loved ones as the person's dying. Loved ones can't come say goodbye. And trying to, and particularly if the loved one's in a coma, the person dying's in a coma, trying to get something that they can say to the people on the phone. It was, it was, wow. it was really sobering. Wow. And you don't really, and that's what, that's the kind of stuff that's been going on behind the scenes where I feel like a lot of us don't see that happening. Yeah. And so it's, it feels weird. It's surreal. Or, yeah. Because it's like all these people have died, but you don't see any type of national across the board. Hey, we're having a night of silence. I, you know, it's just, we're just in it. Yeah. And I don't, yeah. I, I remember seeing, you're just talking about the medical professionals. I remember watching a uh, viral video of a, of a dad coming home from his shift as a little kid trying to run up to him and hug him and he couldn't. He's like, yes. yeah, back off. Yeah. I just he goes in showers yeah. first. His dad just started crying and yeah. uh, it's, it's rough. This whole thing's nuts. Well, we try to, on the show, we try to be tangible with tools. So I think <laughs> one of the things we're naming is that ambiguity, if you're feeling anxious right now, it's totally normal because ambiguity generates anxiety. Right. It's not that there's something wrong with you. The other thing with name, we should, I guess we should just dive in, um, is grief is real. Right. And, uh, you know, yesterday my wife and I stopped by a high school graduate mm. and they did a drive-by graduation ceremony. Tonight we're all driving by a staff member of ours that's relocating to the East Coast. Yep. Um, you know, obviously there's different levels of grief. Losing a loved one is a whole different category. Right. But the thing with grief is no one really gets to tell you if you're grieving or not. Right. And so these high school seniors and like they're grieving, they yeah. don't get a graduation ceremony the way they want. And that's real. Uh, and at the same time, there's actually a, a, a nationally known pastor that uh, died last week. Mm -hmm. And um, I know him, but we weren't close friends, but a lot of people grieving. And I was watching his friends actually right before you came in, 
talk about how they're going to mourn and do a service and it's going to be months later. And I was wow. just thinking, man, how do you, what's that going to be like to right. finally be able to gather and grieve a beloved person a long time later? Right. I think, I think there's a power in, um, in times of ambiguity and grief, being able to sit with other people. And one of my professors used to call this the house of mourning. Yeah. And being able to sit and be in that house of mourning and not necessarily have to say anything, but you're just around people that you know are feeling the same way that you do about the yeah. whole situation. And I think for some of this anxiety to go away, that's going to have to happen. And it can't right now. And so how do you yeah. how do you navigate that in the moment now with everything that's going on? I think it's kind of a question I have and I think a lot of people have too. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I, I think what we usually teach is the antidote to grief is radical acceptance I like what you said, when you get people together, um, and, and by antidote, it doesn't mean you get over grief. It's just you allow it to wash over you and you right. name it and you share it with others and then you get about your business. I think that's the only way with grief. And I think the antidote to ambiguity is to do your best to name the dynamics going on. Mm. Uh, that's what we're trying to do with our staff is like, okay, how many people can gather when, right. And so one of the things that's ambiguous for us at Discovery, just tangibly, how many people in the barn before it's worth having a worship service live? We don't know the answer, but at least naming that that's one of the dynamics. And then the other dynamic for us has been, um, well, what if we do online church for a long time and it's an altogether different experience when they come to the building? And we don't know what that experience is, right. but at least getting it out, it feels less overwhelming. You kind of detangle it a bit. Right. And I, th I think that doesn't feel... Like it's a fix, but it's not, it's not a fix. It's, it's not a fix, yeah. It just helps to reduce, I think, the worry that you have in those situations. You, you know, the other thing, Brenda, just jumped into my mind. There's a, there's a great leadership book by Steve Sample called um, Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. Just the title of huh, it. Yeah. I, don't know. I don't even know what that means. Oh, it's so good. He, he kind of takes all the leadership rules from the 80s and 90s, like the, the Jack Welch kind of stuff, and flips them all on their head. Uh, just a little bit about Steve Sample. He was the president of USC, California, wow. and he was a blue collar um, inventor. He invented a butterfly clip for a dishwasher, oh patented, made good money, and then slowly became an academic. But at the end of the day, he's still basically a blue collar inventor creative, now leading an Ivy League academic institution. Wow. So he had to learn how to lead people that just weren't the same wiring as him. Wow. So he wrote this book. And one of his lessons is always postpone a decision to the last possible moment whenever it's reasonable. <laughs> and that last phrase is the best. But his, his whole, he's like, look, this whole get it done now thing, he's like, that's nonsense. You always know more tomorrow than you know today. And so it's not that you're procrastinating, you're waiting for more insight. I think that's, that's what we have been trying to do as a church. We're trying to manage the anxiety of our people that want an answer by saying, we don't know yet, we're working on it. And then we are trying to push the decision back as late as we can until we know what to do. Right. And we're just managing, and because we don't know what to do right now. Right. So that leads us to this, a second huge source of anxiety. Anytime a leader doesn't know what to do, they get anxious. Yep. Got an example? Yeah. Um, I was having... Uh, problems with some of my volunteers just kind of dropping off. Um, and I didn't know, 
um, how to handle any of it. And then more particularly, I had um, a person who was part of my service coordinators team that helped to kind of make sure everything's running good on Sunday mornings. Um, they just kind of started showing up, you know, whenever they wanted. Um, I wasn't, I, I, I felt like if I said anything that I was going to scare them off and I, I really didn't know what to do. Like I, I, I'd never been in a situation before like this. I never um, had led people that weren't paid. You know, they're yeah. all volunteers. It's yep. a whole different dynamic. Yep. Um, and I had to ask for advice, which in my personality is hard to do sometimes. I hate yeah. asking for help um, because I just, I didn't know how to navigate the whole situation at all. Like it, it was just very, oh, do I, if I do this, I do this and it's going to, in my personality type, if I'm, am I going to come off too harsh? Like, how do I say, hey, I really need you to start. Um, if you still want to do this, you have to keep showing up. You have to keep doing those things. And how do I do that well? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's a small, little tiny example recently. But it worked out fine. Eventually, I got help. <laughs> yeah. So when you don't know what to do, what goes on under the surface in you? Um, or what's the story you tell yourself or any of that? Then I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to do my job. Like I should be fired. Um, somebody else can do it better than me. That's, you get extreme. You get into yeah. imposter syndrome. Yep, totally. Big time imposter syndrome. Yeah. How often in the course of a week would you say you don't know what to do? Just ballpark. Um, if I, uh, let's, I would say probably 50%, 75% sometimes of the time just kind of depends on what the day is, I'd say 50% of the time. That's interesting because in some ways that makes sense because you're newer at your job and the job's kind of been changing a lot. I'm trying to think, so how long have you been a leader at Discovery now? Um, I, w- I think it's been a year now. Yeah, I'd be about right. I, I would say now with everything going on, it's probably 50% of the time. Um, I would say maybe a little bit less during a normal time in history. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what my number is. Like, so I've been leading 15 years almost, 14 and a half. I, there's definitely times where it's 50% or higher. Like right now, for example, do we, we're, we're just about to get cracking on a building project. Right. Break ground. We're probably three months away from being able to break ground, maybe four months. Okay. Do we break ground because building prices are probably historically low? Or are we going to dig a big hole and not be able to build in it because our economy is going to crash. I have oh, no, I don't man. know. I don't know. Oh. And the good news is, you know, we're a size of church now. That decision is no longer on my shoulders. It's on smarter shoulders than mine, Tom and Becky. And right. But I don't know. And I think the reason not knowing what to do causes anxiety is because you feel completely vulnerable. Yeah, like I, I know one of my strategies of developing leaders at Discovery is making them make decisions and I know early on they would keep coming to me for decisions that I didn't know either, but they didn't want to own the responsibility for the decision. Huh. You know what I mean? Like yeah. m- most famously, I remember one of our best leaders, I'd asked her to run the, we did an annual picnic, including a, a pig roast. And at one point she grabs me and she says, how much pork should I order? I'm not a caterer. I have no professional experience in catering whatsoever, <laughs> nor does she. What she was really saying, and she didn't mean to be this, but she's really saying, I want you to run us out of meat. Right. Or I want you to make way too much meat. Right. (laughs) I don't want to be the one, which I totally get. I've found that if I'm going to develop leaders, 
I have to create a culture where they can run us out of meat or make too much meat and me say, no problem. Because someone has to run us out of meat. Right. Yeah, this has been something I've been pushing with somebody that works with me is to get that to get her to um, take more ownership and and hey, you don't need to ask me anymore about this. You just do it, and if it happens and it gets messed up, that's okay. Yeah, and I'll I'll take the blame for it. If somebody gets mad at you, I, I'll be your, your block. Back. Yeah, I'll be your block. It's not a big deal. And that's I think that's that's a hard journey for everybody. Yeah, to, to go down. Yeah, really difficult. Some, some people, they really struggle to make a mistake, I think. Right. And maybe it's because they work in an environment where they got punished for mistakes. Yeah, that's possible too. Yeah, my friend Jay, one of my favorite pastors, he punishes people when they don't make enough mistakes. <laughs> He's actually brought that's people cruel. into his office. I've started doing this now when I learned from Jay. And he'll say, hey, I see what's going on. You're playing it too safe. But we operate by faith around here. <laughs> so this week, you've got seven days to make a mistake. He'll, oh, he'll actually prescribe and they'll be so they'll be like, what? What kind of mistake? And he'll typically say, look, don't end up in jail, but right. you know, do something that causes problems. Yeah, I I feel that one. That one's. I, I think recently for me, that's been. Uh, we're. I mean, we've been doing a database transfer for the last six months now. I think. Yeah, it's a huge project. Um, and that I was really worried about that feeling and costing the church hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but it's been okay so far. I mean, there's some hiccups and things like that, and I. I think we were at a program too that I had gotten us a while back that we're not using anymore. And so I, we paid money for it and it's done with and the sun still rose the next morning and Jimmy didn't kick me out of the building. Right. That's the thing, right? Is, is I, think, I think the reason we, when we don't know what to do, we get anxious is we really believe it's on us. Like we're over-responsible. Right. So then is playfulness the solution or intentional mistake making that's usually what i prescribe right um i think me it was the intentional mistake making was good and then i just have to learn to be playful sometimes um but i, I definitely think the hey look you made a mistake and it wasn't that bad right the, <laughs> Im the impact is not as bad as you think Right. Yeah. That was that was good for me. And then I think I've just kind of naturally started being playful about it. Well, we're going to, I'm going to spend this much money and all right, we'll see yeah. what happens. I think that is the pathway. I think for our listeners, we're, we're talking about three different categories. We're talking about ambiguity. And we're saying the pathway through ambiguity is to name as many dynamics as you can to try to get less ambiguity. I love what you said. It's not that it's going to go away. It just makes it feel less overwhelming. Right. And then the other pathway we believe is postpone the decision until you have to make it. Then that one still it. gives me a little bit of anxiety. Yeah. No, <laughs> I've used that a lot. And I, I know early on with some of my leaders, it was hard for them because I would let them know. I'd say, I remember Becky and I talking about this. I'd say, hey, I run four or five scenarios concurrently and I'll run them right up to the cliff and then we'll, we'll all choose the one we're going to jump off the cliff on. But she wanted more certainty and I said, we don't know. We don't have enough information yet. So we're going to keep running four scenarios. That's one way to do it. Then the second thing we're talking about is grief, which is real. And the, the, the solution is just to name it and accept it. And the third thing we're talking about is when you don't know what to do. Um, and I think, I think what we're getting onto here is earnestness really does make it worse. You really do believe that you're going to screw up. Somebody's going to be disappointed so then the solution is to screw up right? and Which see what happens. So backward sounding sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that works out. Yeah. So, 
Well, we're going to wrap up this episode. We've got one more for the season. Uh, next uh, episode, if you join us next week, we're going to talk about how people actually grow. There's, there's actually three tools that you can use if you're feeling spiritually stuck, and we'll be diving into that next week. We'll see you then. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 